the scale of awkwardness, I was thinking about the sex talk this week. On the scale of awkwardness, like it ranks between like getting stuck, something stuck in your braces, you know, and then like, and then like, but like when you go to kiss somebody with braces and then your braces get stuck together. Like somewhere in there, that level of awkward is what the sex talk is, right? It's so bad. Like peeing your pants in front of a celebrity like that. I mean, just yeah, right up there. You know what I mean? And so as I was thinking about it this week, I was remembering my first experience with the sex talk. And it was my mom. And I was probably like eight or nine. And she had me sit at the kitchen table. And I kid you not, she got out a pen and a napkin. Because nothing says we're going to talk about something really serious like drawing a picture on a napkin, you know what I mean? And I just remember being like, I'm not going to remember any of this. Like, can I go play? You know what I mean? I'm eight, mom. Like, you know, just whatever. And so maybe for you, your parents didn't give you the sex talk. If your parents didn't give you the sex talks, can I just say, as a parent, will you be the one that gives talks to your kids about sex before anybody else does? Amen. Maybe your parents didn't do that for you. Maybe you found out about it in grade school from your ignorant and, and ill-informed friends, right? And they're like, let me tell you, Rich, what this is. And you're like, I don't think you know, man, but all right. Maybe you got the sex talk in sex education, right, where they showed you a video of a baby being born, and you were like, oh, you're, scar you're still scarred <laughs> for life. You know what I mean? I remember that video. It was a terrible video. I'm a mom, and I'm like, no. You know, so. And they get up there like the coach does in Mean Girls, and he's like, okay, so don't have sex. Because if you have sex, you will get pregnant, and you will die. You know? <laughs> like, that, that was it. That was, like, how they did sex ed in school. And so I don't know what the sex talk was like for you, but I, d I guarantee it was probably something like that on a level of awkward that you weren't expecting. But here's the deal is that the reason why people struggle so much to talk about this thing called sex and the reason the world fumbles around as it tries to describe this thing called sex is because sex, listen, is so beautiful and so powerful and so worthy of honor that the world has no idea how to describe it apart from God. The world has no idea how to describe it apart from God. And what the world will do is it will move to one of two camps when it comes to trying to describe human sexuality and human intimacy apart from God. They will move into a camp of legalism because they are afraid of the power of sex. And so to protect our children and to protect man, to protect people around us, we will box it in with legalism and condemnation and religion. And you will find yourself in the camp of legalism where sex is dirty, where it's bad. Or you will find yourself in the camp of licensure. And in this camp, see, we degrade sexuality and we demean it and we cheapen it to a level where we can kind of humanize it in some way so then we don't have to honor it the way that God says to honor it. So I don't know what camp you're in tonight, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if you walked in here tonight and you are an American and you grew up in a, po a post-Platonic worldview, more likely than not, you are in one of these camps, probably a mixture of both. And more likely than not, even if you are a Christian, 
you are probably not viewing this thing called sex the way that our creator designed it to be. At the beginning of the night, we sang this song called Love Not Lovers by the script, and I love it because it says, you will never find love if you only go looking for lovers. You will never find love if you only go looking for lovers. And listen, there is something inside of every single human being. I don't care if you are super skeptical, not romantic in here. There is something in you that, that knows and longs for an intimacy and a deepness of a relationship and a profound, powerful, passionate relationship with another human being. But you don't know what to do with that. And so you settle for lovers instead of the real thing. In other words, you settle for a Kroger brand version of what God intended for you. And you're like, it's cheaper, so I'm going to buy it. You know, like, it's not funny. I feel bad. Sorry, Lord. I feel bad. You will never find this perfect, amazing I believe God-given, romantic, intimate, close, powerful love if you cheapen it by being legalistic with sex or by being licensed or like just whatever goes. And so what I believe God wants to do tonight is give you a vision. The Bible says that without vision, people perish. People perish. And I believe that in the 21st century, our generation is perishing in their sexuality. We are absolutely drowning when it comes to our sexuality. We have no idea what it means to be a sexual being. And we either run from it, and we uh, run from it out of fear and legalism, or we dive into it just so we can cheapen it and get a piece of it. And listen, God has something better for that. He has something better for you, and it is a vision about what he believes and the way he created sex to be. And I think all throughout the Bible, the, sex is talked about all throughout the If you don't read your Bibles, you are crazy. There are romantic relationships in here that will blow your mind. Love at first sight stuff that's like God-given. Like you just have to read your Bibles. There is one book in the Bible that I believe sets kind of a trajectory and, a, and gives us a vision when it comes to our sexual relationships. And it is written in the form of a song. Do you guys um, love love songs? How many of you love love songs? A couple of you. The guys are like, no. <laughs> yeah, right, man. I seen you cry to Shawn Mendes. You know, I know you're like, I am in stitches. You know, like I know. Don't lie. So this week I Googled like the top love songs of all time, right? And number one was, um, man, was like one by Ed Sheeran. I think it was like Thinking Out Loud, right? Or well, that was one of them. Um, one of them was James Arthur, Say You Won't Let Go. That's it. Say You Won't Let Go. Like it's just like, I want to fall in love and cry right now. Where's John? I need to cry. You know, like just like so good. But then it kind of backed up and it went back a decade and it got to Whitney Houston's um, I Will Always Love You. Amen. And then it went to Boys to Men, um, I'll Make Love to You. And I was like, amen. I'm married. I can say that. And then it went further and it went to, uh, it went even further back to the Righteous Brothers and Unchained Melody. And then Etta James at last. And I was like, oh man, 
these love songs. And this is what Google found to be, man, the greatest love songs of all time. But according to the Bible, there's a guy named Solomon, okay? He's the son of King David. And if you know anything about King David, David wrote poems and he wrote songs. He was a musician, actually, as well as a king. How cool is that? He's a rock star and a king. Um, <laughs> but... He has this son, Solomon, and Solomon wrote, Dolly Parton has written over a thousand songs. Isn't that crazy? King Solomon has written 1,005 songs. And of all of those, he writes one song, and he calls it his song of songs. He says, this is the best song I've ever written of all my songs. And we believe that it is inerrant and inspired scripture, that it is actually from God. And I believe that it gives us a vision of what our sexual life should be, should be like. And King Solomon writes about the very first time that a king, he's probably talking about himself, and his bride have their first sexual encounter. That's what the whole book is about. And so if you are feeling, um, man, like you are 13 in your heart, <laughs> don't read it, for real. Because um, it's pretty sexually explicit, honestly. And it's in the Bible. And so for those of you who think that God is just here to lock up your fun, can I just release you with this book tonight? That God created fun. And it's beautiful. And so in Song of Songs, I'm going to read to you from chapter 1. And I believe this is where we get our vision for sex tonight. It says this. Song of Songs. It's a duet. It is a woman singing to her man, and it is a man singing to his woman. It begins, woman, and it begins like this, Sol, uh, Solomon's song of songs. It says, she, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like a perfume poured out. She's saying his character and his name. Everybody knows this dude, and his reputation goes before him, and it's like, a perfume. No wonder the young woman, young women love you. Now take me away with you. Let us hurry. For the king is going to bring me and lead me into his chambers. So you read that and you think, well, my goodness. <laughs> and you're right. And amen. And I believe that tonight God wants to guide us when it comes to our vision of sexuality. And he wants to show us what it means to have a, a, a relationship, a sexual relationship, the way he designed us to. And so the first thing that I think God wants us to understand about our sexuality tonight is this, and that it is that sex is pleasurable. Sex is pleasurable. And some of you may be in here and you're like, oh, no, duh. <laughs> like, thanks, Jess. Could have gotten that from MTV. But here's the, here's the reality is that God made sex pleasurable. God made it that way. He designed it that way. In Song of Songs, that opening, that opening piece there, it says words like delightful and words like pleasurable. And God, when he created the, the world in Genesis 1, it says he created the stars and he, you know, created galaxies and then he created the earth and in the beginning it was formless and it was just covered with waters and then it says he separated waters from land and he would say things like this when he would create. He would say, it's good. And then he would separate land from water and he would say, it's good. And then he'd create vegetation like, like turnips and trees and rainforests and he'd say, it's good. And then he created creatures like humpback whales and, and, and honey badgers, man. And, and he created 
He created like kangaroos and he's like, it's good. And then he created man and he said, it's good. But then he says this about the very first man. He says, but it's not quite good yet. And that word good is this Hebrew word called tov. Everybody say tov. And the Hebrew word tov is spelled T-O-B-E, but um, it's pronounced tov, and it basically was a pleasurable thing. It was pleasing. It was good. It says this in the Blue Letter Bible. It says tov, uh, tov, uh, good in the widest sense, used likewise as a noun to be good, a good thing, a good man or a good woman, also as an adverb to be beautiful, best, bountiful, cheerful, at ease, fair, to be pleasant, pleasurable, uh, precious, prosperous, sweet, to be well favored. And this word tov in the Hebrew language was supposed to engage every single one of your five senses. Your sense of smell, your sense of sight, sound, taste, and touch. And so when you go up into the mountains and you look at God's creation and you see the trees and they are full of life and color and you feel the crisp, cold mountain air coming into your lungs, that's tov. When you eat a meal and it tastes amazing and it's freshly cooked and it's served to you and it's from a chef downtown and the very first bite and it's tov. And sex is tove, every single one of your five senses, and it's good, and it's pleasing, and it's the way he designed it to be. God looks at man, and he's alone, and he says, it's not good just yet. It's not tove. And so he brings him, he brings out of him, actually, his rib, and he creates a woman, and then they have the very first covenantal relationship. They have the very first marriage. They had the very first sexual encounter. And God says it's very good. It is super tov. It is very good. And this may make you uncomfortable because, again, you have probably existed in a place where sex is dirty and it is bad and it is wrong. And God wants to free you up from that tonight. He says, no, in the right confines and in the right spaces, it's actually what I designed it to be. And it is so very, very good. Um, the book of the Song of Songs, um, it is so powerful and it is so kind of sensual in nature that if you are an Orthodox Jew, even today, and you are a male, you would not be able to read it until the age of 30 because they wanted to protect you from that. And so if you're an Orthodox Jew, my bad, because I just read you some. <laughs> I really am sorry. Like, I want to honor your religion, and so I, I really am sorry, okay? But here's the deal, is that the reason they say this is because this book is about pleasure. And it's in the Bible. The holy, inerrant, inspired word of God says this is good. And not just good, it's really good. And it engages all of your senses, and it's for my creation. See, this flies in the face, church, of our legalism. I was reading this week from scholars, and they tried to downplay the Song of Songs as being an allegory between us and God. Okay, can I just tell you, it's not. If you read a modern-day scholar, they'll be like, oh, yeah, like the guys in the 1800s kind of struggled. <laughs> You know, they were pretty scared. They didn't want it to be about what it's actually about, which is sexual intimacy. See, God created sex to be pleasurable, church. And our problem is, is that we are so afraid of the pleasure of it, and we don't know what to do with the pleasure of it, that we either 
move into a camp of legalism or we move into a camp of licensure. And so how are you viewing it tonight? Because God wants you to understand, I made it and it's good. I made it and it's not dirty. I made it. It's not wrong. The second thing that you need to understand about sex tonight is that sex, God made sex powerful. God made sex powerful. And I do mean that word powerful. It says this in Song of Songs. So um, it goes through eight stanzas. Okay, there's eight chapters in the Song of Songs. And it kind of reaches um, its moment of the main point of the entire thing right at the end. And it says, every scholar would say, this is the point of, of, of intensity in the Song of Songs. And it says this. It says, she, um, and this is she talking. It says, place me like a seal over your heart. Seal me um, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Uh, um, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave it burns like a blazing fire like a mighty flame many waters cannot quench love rivers cannot sweep it away if one were to give all of one's wealth out of one's house for love it would be utterly scorned I'm sorry this is powerful language church powerful language it says set me like a seal over your heart when you engage in a sexual encounter with another human being it is like tattooing them on your heart. It is like setting a seal on your arm. And the Bible says this. It says it is a fiery furnace. Nobody's getting out of here alive. Listen, it is a mighty flame. It says this. All of the waters of the earth, it can't quench it. A river can't sweep it away. That's what kind of love God is talking about. And then it says this. It says if you were to get all of the wealth of Trump, if you were to get all of the wealth of Elon Musk, and you would to try to buy love, to exchange all of the money in the world, it would be utterly scorned. This is powerful language, and here's what you need to understand tonight. It is that God created sex so powerfully that it actually binds your soul to another person's soul. It says this in Genesis. Genesis 2, chapter 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So God's like, homie, I'm going to do you a favor and give you a girlfriend slash wife. Here you go. And so he looks at her and he's like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which may sound weird, but when I read it, it's super poetic and beautiful. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united with his wife, and the two become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Can we just pause for a second and look at the fact that when God created the first relationship, that there was no shame. That is powerful, church, that they got into the very first relationship and there was utterly no shame. I don't know what you're feeling tonight about your body. Maybe you don't like your nose. Maybe you don't like your receding hairline. You think you're too fat. You think you got chicken legs. I don't care how you feel, okay? I guarantee you that both Adam and Eve were probably very normal, average-looking people, and yet they were completely exposed with one another, completely naked, and they felt no shame. The power of that, the safety of that, the security of that, the trust of that, that's what God intended for you in your relationship. You would be utterly exposed and completely safe. And that 
is powerful, and it's what God intended for you. If you walked in here tonight and you feel shame about your sexuality, that is not God's plan. If you walked in here and you feel shame about your choices, listen, you can make different choices tonight, and there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no shame. In fact, the relationship that God has for you, you will be completely exposed to that man. You will be completely exposed to that woman, and you will feel no shame. Is powerful. The Bible says this, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and shall go and be united with his wife. Now, fellas in here, this is a freebie. When you get married, you will move out of your mom and dad's house. <laughs> and it is important for you to leave and to cleave. And what that means is you no longer call your mom about your problems, you talk to your wife. This is actually biblical and sacred. It's important. You leave and you cleave because you're about to Join yourself to a brand new family. And the Bible says, therefore he shall leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife. And then it says this, and the two shall become one flesh. That word one is the Hebrew word ekad. It's where um, we read the Lord, God, Lord, the Lord your God is one. Meaning father, son, Holy Spirit, they're one. It's that kind of oneness. When you sleep with someone, when you have sex with someone, you bond yourself to them physically mentally, emotionally, spiritually, two souls actually become one. It's a fusion. If you know what atomic fusion is, it's where two separate atoms, actually with two different nuclei, don't come up and talk to me about science if you're one of the minds geeks. I'd be so mad. I'd be like, you got it wrong. I'll be like, get out of here. These two nuclei fuse together. This blows my mind. You become one nuclei, a brand new thing. And when that happens, I think you know what happens with atomic fusion. And God says it's the same way with sexual union. Two become one, and they are, they're inseparable. Matt Chandler calls it this. He says it's a mingling of souls. It's where two souls together uh, come together, and they become one. And so chemically, listen, Chemically, uh, they, we've actually, over time, we've actually backed up scientifically what is happening in the Bible and what they talk about in the Bible. Chemically, there are two times in our lives where we bond um, to another human being. And there's, there's a chemical that's released in your brain, and it's called oxytocin. The very first time that it happens is when you are a baby or when you are a mom. And it is released in your brain as a baby, and it is released into the mother's brain as the mother, and it bonds the mother to the baby. This is why. You can make fun of a woman all day, and she's like, that's so funny. You make fun of her kid, and she's like, I'm going to kill you. You know, like, <laughs> she is bonded with that baby. She is bonded with that child. In the same way, the moment that you sleep with someone, both of your brains go through a chemical change where oxytocin gets released in your brains, and it actually alters the pathways in your brains where you are bonded to that individual. This is why, church, there is no such thing as it's just physical. This is why, church, man, there is no such thing as casual sex because you are bonding yourself to another human being physically, emotionally, mentally, on a level that you cannot understand, but it's atomic, and it's going to do something to you. In Song of Songs, she writes, and she says, this love is so powerful. It's as powerful as death. And then she says, it's, it's jealousy. As, it's as unyielding as the grave. 
And some of you have seen a jealous girlfriend. You know, we all know the girl that's like, you know, and she's like, don't talk to him. Don't, don't look at him at church, you know. Okay, sleep with him, and that goes to a whole nother level. Like she will rip, she'll claw eyes out, you know. It's as unyielding as the, gra- as the grave. This is why, fellas, you can take or leave that girl, okay? You might think she's okay. She has an okay personality. You're kind of into her, right? But then you sleep with her, and all of a sudden, you're just, like, on her Instagram, and you're on her Facebook, and you're wondering who she's talking to. And you can't live with that girl. She's crazy. But you can't live without her. You are bonded to her. This is why when couples get together, and they sleep together, and everybody knows this couple's no good. They're not going anywhere. The parents know. Friends know. They're like, you're not, this is going to end in disaster. But, you know, you stay together longer because you bonded to them. Can I ask you, is that worth it? Is it worth it for our souls to be bonded for a one-night stand? Is it worth it for our souls to be bonded to a computer screen? I wonder tonight what your view is of sexuality because God says, my goodness, please understand that I made it pleasurable, but I did make it powerful. The third thing that I believe our sexual relationships based on scripture um, will yield and that God designed our sexual relationships to be is that God has made sex to procreate. God has made sex to procreate. It says this in Genesis 1, chapter 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and he said, be fruitful. Now, anytime they talk about fruit between a man and a woman, it means sex and babies, okay? And multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. God made sex pleasurable. He made sex powerful. But please understand this, church. He made sex implicitly involved with family. God says, when I make sex, it's full of pleasure. It's full of power. It is two souls coming together as one soul. And please understand this. It is two souls possibly creating another soul. In the 1960s, there was this thing called the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution. And the goal of the sexual revolution was to, um, kind of the thesis of it was, um, man, that your freedom Your freedom and the epitome of your freedom was contingent upon your personal sexual self-expression. In other words, what they said in the 1960s about sex is, man, it is about you. It is for your gratification. It doesn't involve really anybody else, and it definitely doesn't have consequences on anybody else. And if a revolution, the definition of a revolution is to overthrow, if that's the definition of a revolution, listen, the sexual revolution was obtusely successful. Because we are alive today, years later, decades later, and right now in our world, we are experiencing the utter fallout of the sexual revolution. We are experiencing, God says this, he says, man, I created sex powerful, I created it pleasurable, I created it where two souls come together, I created it where it possibly creates souls. And the sexual revolution said, man, it's actually all about you and it's about your gratification and it's for you to essentially get your jollies. And don't worry about it. It's not really going to impact anyone else. And we are growing up now in a generation that I believe is fatherless. And the reason it's fatherless is because of this movement. The reason that we have things like the Me Too movement is because we treat sex like a game. The reason that we have arguments about sexual assault 
is because we said it's just about us. It doesn't involve anybody else. And certainly nobody else is going to get hurt. And God says, oh my goodness, I created this for families. I created this for children. And listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you have walked in here tonight, and listen, you have forced your girlfriend to get an abortion, or you, as a girlfriend, have gotten an abortion, or maybe you have made some sexually explicit decisions in your lifetime. You need to understand that if Jesus were standing up here tonight, he would welcome you, he would speak with you, he would talk with you, he would cry with you about your babies, he would be just as upset as you were about it. And he would welcome you in, and he would say, you know what, there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But you know what he'd also say? I'm so sorry. But there are consequences I can't remove. There's no condemnation. But when we make decisions like this, there's consequences. And Christians will say, oh, but all sin is the same. All sin's exactly equal. It's actually not biblical. The Bible actually says that when we sin sexually, you sin against your own body. And that word body means yourself. But we all know that we actually aren't just sinning against our own body. We're actually sinning against another human. And we're possibly sinning against another generation of humans. And I say all this to say this. Be a generation that loves family. Be a generation that loves family so much that you said sex isn't just about me. Sex isn't just about my pleasure. Sex isn't just about, it is about me and another human bonding and possibly at some point creating another soul. Can I just tell you that John and I, one of the greatest joys of our lives is our marital coming together and the product of that. There's nothing more, more beautiful God says, oh my goodness, your sex, it is so pleasurable, and I made it that way. God said, I designed sex, and it's powerful, and I made it that way, and I made it for you to procreate. He says, I'll make you in my own image, and then you will go forth, and you will make little things in your own image. Please don't do that with someone you don't love. The last thing is this. We don't awaken love before it's time. We don't awaken love before it's time. In the Song of Songs, it says this phrase three separate times. It says a phrase three separate times, and it's because it knows the power of our sexual relationships. It knows the, man, the the audaciousness of our sexual relationships, and it wants to set a vision for our sexual relationships. And so it says three separate times. The girl will talk, and then she'll talk to her beau, and then the, the husband will talk, and he'll talk to his woman. And then at different points in time, she looks off to the right, and it says she talks to her friends. Isn't that interesting? And every single time she talks to her friends, I'm assuming her unmarried friends, she says something like this. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. It's about to get crazy. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does in the field. Don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This phrase is found three times in the Song of Songs. Don't awaken love until it's proper time. See, because the writer knows what I think maybe some of us have come to know, maybe some of us don't know just yet, and it's this. It's that our sexual lives, our sexual selves is like a sleeping giant. It is like a sleeping, beautiful, powerful, pleasurable giant. And the last thing that you want to do is awaken that sucker at the wrong time. And basically what they're saying here is that there is actually only one relationship. And I believe this with all my heart. 
There's actually only one relationship that contain, can contain the power and the atomic fusion and the pleasure and the babies of sex. See, if sex is the mingling of souls, then marriage is the mingling of spirits. And in a marital relationship, two become one flesh sexually, but then it, it's overseen by God the Father, and it's intercessed with the Holy Spirit. See, if you are sleeping with someone, you're mingling with their souls, but if you're married to them, your spirit mingles with their spirit. In Greek, there are four words for love. And we in America, we like, man, we've got one word for love, and it's just not enough, right? We're like, I love tacos, and I love my cat, and I love basketball, I also love my spouse. Like, it's just like, right? It's like you love tacos as you love your spouse? Like, I'm confused. There are four words in the Greek, and there's this word eros, and it is erotic love. It basically is a physical, um, it is our physical love towards another person. It's that profound sexual attraction. There's this word phileo. The word phileo means um, a friendship love, an affection, a deep, warm affection that's platonic, best friends. Then there's this word agape, and it's the way that God loves his church. It's unconditional, it's sacrificial, it goes first. And then there's this uh, word storge, and it's familial love. There's four words for love. There is only one relationship, church. I was thinking about it this week, and it blew my mind. We don't even get to have quite this form of love with God because we don't necessarily have eros love with God. There is one relationship that you have all four and experience all four of these forms of love, and it is in a marital, covenantal relationship between a man and a woman where you come together as one and you have your Holy Spirit involved um, where he is with you and for you and covering you. And God says, this is the relationship that I intended you to experience your sexuality within because it can hold the atomic nature of it. It can hold when the explosions go off. It can hold when the fire comes. It can hold when you feel like you're going to pass out because you're so in love. Listen, it can hold because God's with you. And so if everybody could stand tonight, what is your vision tonight of your sexuality? Is it legalistic? Maybe for you tonight, it's not legalistic. Maybe for you, it's licensure. What I want you to understand is, and lastly is this, and with every eye closed, head bowed, Jesus in his lifetime mingled with prostitutes, probably more than maybe any other type of people. It was like prostitutes and lepers, right? And in one of his interactions with somebody who had been so sexually immoral and so, so far gone in their decisions, he looked at them and he says, listen, I don't condemn you. But then he said this, he said, now go and sin no more. And that, that moment that he's talking about is repentance. Now repentance actually doesn't mean for you to feel super sad and ashamed and cry. What it means, re truly, repentance means to change your mind. And God tonight would love for a whole bunch of people when it comes to their sexuality to change their mind from legalism, for, from licensure, to a place where you say, God, I see it, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious, and it's powerful, and it's worthy of honor, and I've got it now, God. I got exactly what I want to do tonight. And God says, awesome. Now go and sin no more. 
And so with every head bowed, if you are in here and you just want to say, man, Lord, thank you so much for this vision. And I would love to exchange my vision of sex for your vision of sex. Would you raise your hand nice and high? Amen. 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 Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much tonight. I thank you for every single person in here. And God, I pray, God, that people would feel the weight of your truth, but God, they would feel no condemnation. They would feel the freedom of pursuing your vision without worry and without restraint. I pray that every single person in here would know exactly what you would have them to do, and they would do it. God, I thank you for every single marriage that will come out of here. I thank you for the fact that you invented sex. And God, I pray that we would be the type of beings that wielded it well in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.